Listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live show in Echo Park, California, where folks read their letters on stage. Real letters they've written, letters they've received, correspondence back and forth, or letters we wish we could write. Don Black takes us back to the trials and tribulations of discovering love and its subsequent heartbreak for the first time. I'm going to read some stuff for you guys. It has to do with love. Raise your hand if you've been in love. Raise your hand if you've been to middle school. <laughs> so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read these to you. This is an amalgamation, uh, part fact, part slight extrapolation. Uh, the names have been changed to uh, preserve uh, people's hearts. So the letters, uh, one side of a letter, conversational relationship with a young Donnie and a girl we will call for this exercise, Candace. Dear Candace, I write you this for Miss Gingrich's English class. Today we are talking about Mark Twain. Exactly. Boring. But that douche seems like a total racist, which is crazy that we read his stuff. As I sit here, my mind drifts, as always, to thoughts of you. It seems weird to be a young man and have a girlfriend that I think about so much. To the point that it's hard to do most anything else. I wish we could have a house together. and do all the stuff that older people do, wink, wink. Maybe after school, you could by accident miss your bus and we could hang out till the late bus arrives. If I had a car or I could get a license, I would just drive you (laughs) all the way home. And we could just hang out and hold hands or whatever or kiss and junk or whatever we wanted. (laughs) Love, Donnie. I should burn these in a pyre on the stage after this is done. Dear Candace, these are in chronological order, by the way. I know your mom said that we can't talk on the phone anymore. (laughs) I wish I could find enough wire in my mom's basement there because I would make a super long set of those tin can phones to talk through. You know, I could talk to you all day, every day, and it's weird because I'd probably run out of things to say. But I think we could just speak telepathingly, like psychics do. That's how much we know each other. I know it's how we've been communicating recently with each other these days because you don't really talk to me that much anymore. (laughs) I guess our relationship is pretty deep. Since we are way different than other kids in relationships, I feel like we are an old married couple. We don't need to say anything to understand us. It's just that simple. You totally rule, but sometimes I'd like to talk a little. (laughs) Love, Donnie. P.S. The canned phone idea might work, but we'd have to figure out what to do about the birds hanging out on the wire and stuff like that. Plus, if it sags, people could get their heads cut off uh, riding by on motorcycles. I'll draw up a plan. (laughs) Dear Candace, it was nice of you to stuff my relationship bracelet back into my locker, but maybe you didn't know it was a gift. I don't need it back. It was for you, always, because you rule big time. 
Also, the telepathic talking isn't working so good. I've heard about girls playing hard to get, but I don't know why you do that when I've already got you. <laughs> Brad Martin is a dill hole, so it doesn't really make me jealous. I wish we could spend more time together like we used to. That would rule, underline. I know you and Brad have to dissect together, so I guess that forms a special bond. There's a lot of homework to do, which is why you spend so much time together. You should send me a note sometimes, because this relationship is still real intense, but I don't hear much from you. Dear Candace, it has come to my attention that you have started Frenching Brad Martin. It could just be a lie or a rumor since we're still together, but, you know, I could never talk to you because you're always with him. Let's just say that I forgive you already in advance, so you don't have to bother trying to make me feel jealous by being around him all the time. Maybe we can eat lunch together sometime. You know, whenever I come over to your lunch table, Julie and Kim seem to form this barrier of sorts, and it's hard to get a chance to talk to you. I'm sure they don't mean it, but it seems odd that they would eat sitting sideways on their seats with their legs blocking the other seats. I would venture a guess that they would get a stomachache eating in that position day after day, but because every day when I come over, they're like that. It's weird. In Woodshop today, we made these super smooth paperweights, and Carla Roman nailed me with the belt sander when I walked by, which totally blew. My arm got super bloody, and when it spilled onto my paperweight, the outline of the spill looked like you. <laughs> I totally varnished over it to preserve the design. I guess some things are just meant to be by a higher power. Awesome. I think Mark Twain wrote, love is a battlefield, but I think it's more like the United Nations or Switzerland or something. I, United Nations, you. Love, Donnie. <laughs> Dear Candace, thank you for your kind words. The gift you are giving me of being alone might seem crappy to an outsider, but to me it will be something I'll learn to treasure. When you said that you weren't good for me because you love me too much, I started to realize how much your love was interfering with my work. <laughs> I'm still young and creative, and I don't have time for someone like you who needs to be around me all the time. I mean, seriously. You have to understand that we are in two different places, and although I'll always love you, it's just not the right thing for now. Sure, Brad might fill the void for a while, but, you know. That's why I, like you, hope that it works out for you, too. I must admit, though, although this is the right thing for me and it'll be super hard for you, I will miss the way your candy cane earrings look this past holiday season, dangling deliciously from your M&M earlobes. I miss your intensity and how you never looked me straight in the eyes because you knew that your beauty would distract me or practically blind me. I appreciate your kind words, and I know that as you deal with us not being a couple anymore, I will be here as a shoulder to cry on when that asshole Brad shows what a dickhead he is. Love, Donnie. Grant Bichoco is a writer and puppeteer. His podcast, The Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd, has won numerous awards and was the longest-running children's podcast. As a treat, Grant brought in a puppet of the evil Dr. Steve and reads fan mail written by children as Dr. Steve. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, so let's see... Uh, now, the first letter here, it's, uh, this is, uh, came in to me. It says, hi, Dr. Steve. I love you and your show. 
Fidget, you are so, Fidget is my sock-shaped assistant. He's this little guy who uh, travels around with me. Fidget, you're so kind to give your orange feather to buy Dr. Steve a Christmas present. Dr. Steve, I can't believe all you would give Fidget is a plastic spoon for Christmas. Fidget, could you send me a piece of paper with your signature and a picture of you on it? And Dr. Steve, the same. I want to put them on my wall. By the way, I also made a poster of you and Fidget. I hope you like it. Is there any way that I could buy a plushie of both of you? I'm really big fan, and I would love one. And I'm 11 years old. So, uh, so of course, I had to write it back. And uh, here's the response that I wrote back. Hello! Thank you so much for the letter you sent me and Fidget. To answer your question about the Christmas presents that Fidget and I exchanged, I can see how you would think that it's lopsided to say that Fidget sold his feather and all I got him was a plastic spoon. What you must realize is that the spoon I got him was highly collectible. I mean, they were only available for a limited time in those cereal boxes. Fidget grew another feather. Those boxes of cereal disappeared from store shelves in four to six weeks. So you see, I really was very generous. I absolutely love the picture you drew of Fidget and myself. I've hung it on my refrigerator. <laughs> Funny story. One night at about two in the morning, I went to the kitchen to have a late night snack, and I forgot that I'd hung your picture on the fridge. Oh, I turned on the lights and nearly scared myself to death when I saw my own face staring back at me. When I realized that it was me and not an intruder, I hung up with the police and proceeded to have a grand conversation with myself, completely forgetting my hunger. In fact, I've lost five pounds since I've hung your picture up because I always get distracted by my good looks and forget to eat. Finally, I just wanted to tell you that I am on your side. I think they should make plushies of me and Fidget. I know they'd sell at least three of each, one for you, one for me, and one for my mom. Uh, sadly, I don't think they ever will. But if you look in the envelope that this letter came in, you will see that I have included a few surprises for you. They aren't plushies, but hopefully you'll enjoy them. Also included is an autographed picture of me and Fidget. I have waived the usual $300 per signature charge since you asked so nicely. Uh, don't tell anybody that, though. Uh, thank you again for writing. Happy 2012. Your idol, Dr. Steve. Oh, uh, P.S. Fidget says, meh, meh, meh. Whatever that means. And there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. Corbett Truby loved his cat Einstein more than anything. Fearing Einstein was lonely while he was at work and play, Corbett bought her her very own laptop. After Einstein passed away, he discovered hundreds of emailed love letters between Einstein and her French feline lover. The following are a few samples of that forbidden love. So, they started off with the usual bullshit uh, kind of exchange. What do you like to do? I like catnip. I like this. I like boxes. Um, I like to stare at things. Um, and then it gradually progressed into more uh, romantic, uh, intense things. Uh, where basically, Pierre was falling in love with her um, and just proclaiming all kinds of weird French crap to her. So um, here's uh, one of the earlier emails. Read a piece of this. This is from uh, June 18th, uh, 2006. Um, bonjour, Einstein. Uh, merci beaucoup uh, for opening up to me as I... You know what, it's, it's a French cat, so I'm, I'm gonna do a French accent, that just didn't sound right. Let me start over again, I'm sorry. Bonjour Einstein! Merci beaucoup for opening up to me as I have opened up to you. 
I would like nothing more than to express this appreciation in person. Perhaps one day we can meet at the penthouse suite of l'Hotel du Palais. We can lay by the fireplace on the expensive sweaters your whorish father recently purchased and was hoping to wear but now cannot because we refuse to move off of them. Then, I will gently knead the back of your neck with well-cushioned and manicured but rugged and powerful paws while my melodic masculine purr serenades your ears. And then, and only then, will you melt into a heaving furry pool of ecstasy so I may ravage you as if you were a small bird made of fabric that is attached to a long plastic stick. So you get where he's going, right? It's kind of a horn dog. So things kind of progress a little bit more. He's kind of proclaiming more stuff. Um, I don't know what she's saying about me. Well, here, yeah, whatever. This is from May 22nd, uh, 2006. Bonjour, Einstein. You are definitely a woman that I could get to know better. Alas, as I finished your letter while sunning myself spread eagle in my pied de terre that was built for me in the dining room for my fifth birthday, I realized you even know what it's like to be trapped in an urban wonderland that you cannot begin to explore. For me, I understand that it is my own safety that a world as hungry for life and culture as Paris could not handle this hot piece of tail. As for you, I know that you are simply a victim of your tyrannical and promiscuous parent. I am respecting your wish to call him that, although we both know that he did not create you nor let you suck from him. He is too preoccupied with his peak-headed gluttonous ways to see what a feisty, untamable queen you are. It's like when I watch Grey's Anatomy, around with that randy, arrogant Alex. He's always dicking over Izzy as she tries to put passion into her work. But then luckily, Izzy finds the man with the shitty heart who is quite handsome and you know he is okay and everything and he's nice to her. But then he dies in the finale and she is a total mess. Einstein, I want you to know that my heart is very strong. And even though I am arrogant as required by French law, I will always be honest with my blossoming feelings for you. So, this is the uh, final letter from Pierre. September 28th, 2006. Bonjour, Einstein. Ça va, ma petite calico du soleil? Your last letter left me breathless. Reading about the tales of younger years, hunting prey in the wild Serengetis of Orlando inspired me to create un safari du magnifique of my own. After my caretaker departed to perform tasks in order to generate the income necessary to support my lifestyle that is not verbally agreed upon between Frenchmen and the animals they impose their will upon, I decided to forego my morning ritual of staring at my favorite corner in the living room to capture a small rodent I encountered several weeks ago. You remember, no? He was rummaging in the pantry that morning. I was making a cafe creme and listening to the new album by that beach, Calabruni. <laughs> On this particular day, I decided to leave out a morsel of Pont l'Evêque and hide behind La Corbeille. That's French for trash can. Isn't it funny how it sounds like your father's name? Corbet, Corbeille. Corbet, 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 Corbet. Ha 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 Asshole. Anyways, in minutes, the rodent emerged to feast. I did a spreadly but threatening jump towards him in the frozen horror. I snarled heavily in his face, the lingering odors of my lavender tuna croissant and pear basil brandy shocking his fear even further. Mon frère! Are you prepared to sacrifice yourself in the names of the primary urges that felines across the universe succumb to millions of times per day? I declared. No response. 
Mon frère, do you comprehend the permanence of death and the death of consciousness in a post postmodern society? I growled. No response. I'm going to kill you, damn it. Have you nothing to say? I yelled with all my operatic might. And then he spoke. My name is Jean-Luc. I am not afraid of you or death. Rousseau says, every man having been born free and master of himself, no one else may under any pretext whatever subject him without his consent. To assert that the son of a slave is born a slave is to assert that he is not born a man. Those who think themselves the masters of others are indeed greater slaves than they. Dear cat, though you may think you control my fate, you will never be above me. Is this how you want to exist in this world? Einstein. It was then that I realized I was so blinded by my jealousy of your adventurous spirit that I was willing to let my powerful but incredibly valid ego eradicate the life of someone who apparently matched me in intellectual capacity and bravery. How could I lower my impeccably high standards into a senseless bloodbath? However, I'm not going to let this little high horse little shit off so easily for showing me up like that. We reached an agreement. I let him leave. And he never returned to the apartment again. And in order to seal the deal and bestow badges of honor to enhance the story would be regale others with in the future, he allowed me to scratch his ear and I let him bite my front right paw. Very hard, I might add. And after that, he was gone. Oh, little mouse, you awoke my morality. But Einstein, I could not have ever, ever Reason to that occasion? To begin with, if you hadn't stirred my thick, juicy, massive, throbbing heart. Bisous, Pierre. Patrick Bristow improvises a letter based on an audience suggestion. What's the theme of the letter Patrick's going to be improvising? A revenge letter. All right. Okay. So I'm receiving a revenge letter. You're receiving a revenge letter. Okay. okay. Let's give him a lot of applause, shall we? Dear resident in apartment 19B, you have thrown my laundry on the floor for the last time in the communal laundry room. I do not appreciate this, 19B. In fact, now is your comeuppance. You will pay dearly. In fact, by the time you've read this letter, you will have already paid in ways you will not understand until you understand them. (laughs) Dear 19B, I noticed that you drive a Kia Sorento. Consider now that as you think it is safely parked in our secure parking lot down there at the bottom of Huron Street, it is not safe at all. In fact, I have removed the engine, the transmission, the upholstery, the seats, your cat beds, and the tires, leaving you basically a shell worth currently $141.95 on eBay. Oh, shit. Okay. Dear 19B, you thought you had $3,256.87 in your checking account. Go online. 
Dear 19B, you're on a donor waiting list. Or you were. Dear 19B, you have been very close with your family, including your twin brother Trevor and your mother Maria. Services will be held at Forest Lawn Hollywood Hills on Thursday the 15th at 2 p.m. Dear 19B, you've always been so proud that you've never had an addiction problem or a sexually transmitted disease. You'll find out. Oh, shit. There's more. Dear 19B, I have published on Facebook your credit report and your ATM uh, receipts, including all of your visits to the sexual pleasure shop on Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood, you homo. Dear 19B, I have stolen the plants off your... Oh, fuck no. Dear 19B, did you turn your heat on? It's awfully cold. I had access to your filter and have put in a ricin pad. You should notice neurological damage in happening the I hope you've learned your lesson not to throw people's laundry on the floor again. 19B, love Tammy. I'm 19D! <laughs> Thank you. Alina Gorelick shares her harrowing experiences as a child growing up in Minsk in the shadow of Chernobyl. Dear Karen, you were already dead by the time I was born. Yet I've come to realize that you might be able to understand me better than many of the living. So here's my story. It was late one night when I felt my mom pull back the covers and tug at my shoulder. Mom? I rubbed my eyes and tried to regain control of the blanket. It was dark outside, and my hair still felt wet from the bath. I couldn't have been asleep long. Mom? I struggled to stay in bed, but she reached for me, and I felt her hands tremble. Come on, let's take a bath, she whispered, pulling me toward her chest. But we just took one. Mom, what's going on? I noticed tears in her eyes and instantly felt like crying, too. Come on, she kept repeating as she dragged me into the tub and pulled the nightgown over my head. Mom, please, I sobbed. The scalding hot water poured out of the faucet and drowned out my cries. The Chernobyl nuclear plant exploded on Saturday, April 26, 1986. I was eight years old and spent the day playing outside in the rain. That rain, we would later learn, carried the bulk of the fallout materials from the disaster site 200 miles away. That explosion was an accident. They were performing a test and something went wrong. But in your case, Karen, it was no accident. The man who ran the Oklahoma plant where you worked exposed you to a lethal dose of plutonium as retaliation for your testimony on the conditions at that plant. And so you too had to endure decontamination although I suspect being stripped and scrubbed by strangers was far worse, or so the movie Silkwood would suggest. You were a young woman in your 20s, who I suspect had about as much to do with radiation prior to taking the job at the plant as I did in second grade. And then in one day, it all changed for both of us. 
I had already been asleep when Grandma called with the news. Her friend at the energy ministry phoned to say that there had been a release following an explosion and that the winds were blowing it all towards us in the city of Minsk. She also hinted that the authorities were going to try and conceal it for as long as they could. So my family started spreading the word. It would indeed be several days before the general public was told about the accident. The contaminated milk and produce continued making their way through the channels of a planned economy. We even heard rumors that the tainted bread had made it as far east as Uzbekistan. By then, my parents began administering iodide to me, which I suspect we also had to take. Did they have it in the pill form in America? Ours were these vile drops. They were so disgusting that even diluting them in a glass of milk made me gag. I imagine that working at a nuclear plant, you were around Geiger meters every day. I wouldn't see my first until the beginning of the next school year. A man in a white lab coat walked between desks, pointing the little machine at our necks. We giggled nervously as it chirped like a baby pigeon. TV began showing footage from the accident site. And terms like sarcophagus, cesium, liquidators soon entered our vocabulary. I asked my grandma what half-life meant, but she just stroked my head. She was a physicist, but a grandma first. You would have probably gotten a much more satisfying answer out of her, Karen. I wonder, who did you have around to ask these questions? Did anyone make you feel okay? By summertime, mushroom hunting was out for us, and so was picking berries. That bumped me out almost as much as the fishing ban. In fact, all wonders of the countryside were now off limits, and I was trapped in the city, gagging on brown milk. For a third grader, this fate was probably as maddening as your fight with Kermagee's management, who claimed that you had poisoned yourself. However, for me, the worst was yet to come. It was the first day of winter break when Dad came home dragging a large, festive-looking box. My initial excitement quickly turned to disappointment when its contents was revealed to be an imitation pine tree. But Dad, I pleaded in indignation, we're not the fake tree kind of people. You said so yourself. Yes, well, that was before all the real ones turned orange. But Dad can't radiation. My little world collapsed on itself. I couldn't imagine anything worse at this point in my life. And even though, you know, as I would go on to suffer health problems brought on by cesium replacing calcium in my bones, as blood flowed out of my nose like the Buckingham Fountain, it was a holiday tree that I missed more than anything. But I was lucky. Much luckier than you, Karen. Your life came to a tragic end when you were run off the road and killed in a traffic accident. It isn't clear how or why. Most suspect foul play. Meanwhile, I went on to as normal of a life as can be expected. We left for America, and after a few years, my health improved. Better still, I can have as many life trees as I want. Spruce, pine, even a palm, like the one that now grows outside my place in LA. Thing is, I still have no idea what it all meant. I was too young, too close to the epicenter of the catastrophe to understand it. All I know is that I was scared, terrified of it all. Radiation became the monster that lived under my bed. It lurked around corners and picked off victims almost at random. Yet when people ask me how I feel about nuclear energy, I struggle to give them the answer they want. Very conflicted, and I wonder how you felt about it. You too experienced it quite literally on your skin. And yet your concern was for the workers, the safety precautions, things that would make it a better industry. But the same men who could make those changes were also the ones who used plutonium to poison you. I certainly know that neither of us has, had, or ever will have the answer. But I suspect that you too 
would have a hard time with the question. Until one day, Alina. My name is Jane Entwistle, and I read a letter to a legendary rock band. This is not a letter I have sent, although I would really like to if I had his address. Dear Bruce Hornsby and the Range. (laughs) I'm writing to you collectively to apologize for the vitriol I have channeled in your direction for the past 20 years. If the theory is true that a butterfly flapping its wings on one side of the world can cause a windstorm on the other side, then the outpouring of venom issuing forth from me has surely caused in you several internal organs to fail, or at the very least, the inopportune malfunctioning of a bass guitar. I didn't set out to despise you. It's quite possible I even enjoyed your music before I was irrevocably poisoned against you for all eternity. I blame my mother. I blame canned radio. But mostly I blame heat saver windows. I was 16 years old living in British Columbia, Canada. I was in grade 10 doing passably well. On the inside, I suffered from intense insecurity, a vivid imagination, a predilection for romanticism, and a softness that rivaled Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) On the outside, I presented like a lazy bastard who cried a lot and listened to Pink Floyd. It was then that it was decided for me that the workforce would rectify these wily teenage ways and set me straight. My brother's girlfriend had a job working in an office of sorts, and so it was that I should also work in that same office. It was good enough for her, then it was good enough for me. Thank God she wasn't a hooker or a phlebotomist. (laughs) The job was telemarketing. Not just any ordinary telemarketing job that one might, if blessed with the gift of gab, possibly succeed at. Promoting a new dentist in the area, soliciting donations for the children's hospital, or acquiring subscriptions for a fancy new cable package? Nope. It was selling windows over the phone. (laughs) Fancy fucking heat saver windows. I was 16 years old for Christ's sake. How the hell was I, with my squeaky five-year-old sounding child's voice, going to convince anyone to buy windows over the phone? I was too inexperienced in the world of housery to even understand what the hell a heat saver window was. I would drag myself to work on the bus after school, armed with ketchup, potato chips, and orange pop. It's a Canadian thing. And sit at a desk confronted with a behemoth of a phone book and a phone, probably rotary. The older girls would already be there, perched on their desks, gossiping and tossing their hairband hair. It was the 80s. They would look at me with pity and relief that they had marched through that awkward time and emerged, what, not pregnant, still in love with Van Halen, (laughs) still able to rock a feather roach clip attached to their favorite black leather handbag? Who knows? I tuned them out as being frightening projections of what life had in store for me. And then there was the radio. The canned radio that played the same rotation of songs hour after tedious punch-me-in-the-face hour and thus enters Bruce Hornsby and the range. As I dialed numbers and frantically whispered my prepared opening to whoever answered the phone, Hornsby taunted me with, that's just the way it is. Some things will never change. (laughs) Hello, 
Are you prepared for winter? Is your heating bill through the roof? Fuck off. That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. So can I have an appraiser come by and give you a free estimate? You can come by and that's just the way it is. Some things will never change. Hello, is your mummy or daddy there? I have a froggy what jumps really high. And so, out of desperation and humiliation, began my random conversations with a small child who spoke to me endearingly of the antics of his frog. Whether the frog really existed, I didn't care. I would listen with rapt attention, giggling and asking questions. And if someone passed by my desk, I would speak authoritatively about the benefits of double glazing. After three months, I was let go. I hadn't sold a single window, big surprise. I was relieved, but tainted somehow. It doesn't matter where I am, the bank, my car, the grocery store, but if that goddamn song comes on, I have to get away from it as fast as I can because I instantly feel nauseous and volatile. <laughs> I'm not even kidding anyone who's been with me and that song comes on. Um, I have a similar reaction to Enya, but that involves waiting tables in a traditional silk kimono. That's another letter for another day. <laughs> true, it's true. Me, silk kimono. I hope you understand, Mr. Hornsby and the Ranges. I don't mean to despise you with a blackness so deep it threatens to swallow Echo Park. Some things will never change. That's just the way it is. Get a job. All my love, Jane. You've been listening to To Whom It May Concern. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a single letter. Like us on iTunes so more people will be exposed to the show. And if you have a letter you would like to submit, visit www.readyourletter.com. The music on this episode was performed by Jossie Ross. This show was produced by Jane Entwistle and Justin Crane. I want to be someone who never makes mistakes. But I ain't ever seen nobody Ever really live that way eh? Cause we all just got our problems No use in living how we ain't